All right, good. Here we go. That's so funny. I say it and then we start. How about that? It's magic. That's right. Hello, I'm Kimberly Adams and welcome to Make Me Smart, where none of us is as smart as all of us. It's Tuesday. Oh, I'm Kyle Rizdahl. It's Tuesday. Both of those things are true. Uh, so we're going to do a single topic, single topic today, uh, and it is DACA, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Program, set up, as, as probably most of you remember or have heard in the decade or so since, by the Obama administration. Thousands of uh, undocumented uh, young people brought here by their parents, um, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of them, um, of which about 600,000 or so are covered by um, DACA, which means they have received protection from deportation and also uh, been able to work to participate officially and without sanction uh, uh, in this economy. Yeah, and the people eligible for these programs, that's meant so much to them. The, the ability to get jobs without drama, the ability to go to school with a little less drama. But all these years later, this program is still on shaky legal ground, and the young immigrants who are brought to this country as children still don't have permanent legal status. So that's what we want to talk about today. DACA, 10 years on its legacy and the future of immigration policy in this country. The expert of choice today is Professor Tom Wong. He's a professor of political science at the University of California, San Diego, also director of the U.S. Immigration Policy Center at UCSD. Professor, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. For those who have lost track, uh, in which number I count myself, where is DACA right now in the court fight, the legal fight, the political fight? What's the status? DACA is currently being fought out in the courts right now. Existing DACA recipients can continue to renew their status, which means temporary relief from deportation and work authorization. Uh, this is uh, renewable every two years. But there can be no new applicants to the program. So those who were previously protected by DACA continue to be protected by DACA, but because of the legal battles, uh, no new individuals can apply for DACA. And uh, after the Fifth Circuit uh, rules, uh, there may no longer be any DACA for anybody. Uh, so... DACA recipients across the country and immigration rights and justice advocates are really on pins and needles when it comes to the legal fate of uh, DACA. You know, we kind of gave this big picture overview at the top of, you know, protections under DACA, being able to be involved in the economy and go to school and things. But specifically, what did DACA do? Yes. Yeah, so for a group of undocumented young people, so there were certain requirements that needed to be met. They were given temporary relief from deportation, so effectively non-deportable, and also given work authorization so that the DACA recipients uh, could fully engage in the American workforce. They could apply for jobs. They could uh, apply their, their education to their career of choice. It transitioned a group of undocumented young people from being in the shadows to being almost fully-fledged members of American society. It's about, uh, as we said, 600,000 or so people. Uh, the American labor force is 165 million, give or take. Uh, I don't want to be that guy, but the economic impact of this individually for them is, of course, enormous. What does it mean for the the American economy as a whole, do you think? 
When we think about the impact of DACA, we do kind of first start with the individual recipients. So when we think about DACA recipients, uh, me along with uh, team members at the Center for American Progress, uh, United We Dream and National Immigration Law Center, uh, we have been surveying DACA recipients for almost uh, the span of the program, so almost a decade now. Mm-hmm. So when we think about the individual recipient, we see in our most recent survey in 2021 that nearly half moved to a job with better pay, over a third moved to a job with better working conditions. Mm-hmm. Importantly, nearly a third moved to a job that better fits their education and training. And so you can imagine a time before DACA when DACA recipients could go to school, but without work authorization could not uh, fully participate in the labor force. Uh, Similarly, we see over one third uh, moving to a job that, quotes, better fits their long-term career goals. But to your question on the broader economy, we are also learning that DACA recipients are making substantial footprints in the American economy. So when we think about the requirements for DACA, we asked DACA recipients to essentially be better than the average American when it came to criminal records, when it came to education. Uh, We asked DACA recipients to essentially do more. And part of that do more uh, was to get an education. And so we're talking about a highly educated cohort of undocumented young people, because in order to have DACA, education was part of uh, that that exchange for temporary relief from deportation and work authorization. So when we think about these DACA recipients, we can imagine this cohort of young professionals who are applying their education, who are just beginning to hit their strides in their careers, and are making a bigger economic footprint. So for example, roughly half of DACA recipients uh, reported buying their first cars after receiving DACA. Hmm. So even though DACA recipients may be a small part of the broader American workforce, when you have this exogenous shock of nearly 800,000 people, half of whom are buying their first car because they're able to transition from being undocumented to getting a job that better fits their education and training, then we're talking about uh, reverberations across the economy. Uh, We know the derivative benefits of car buying, for example, in terms of maintenance, upkeep, registration and title fees uh, also uh, bring revenues to states. But we're also seeing that DACA recipients are increasingly purchasing their first homes. So when we think about DACA, it's no longer a cohort of undocumented young people in the sense that we're talking about high school and college students. The Mm -hmm. average age of DACA recipients now is getting close to 30. And so again, Mm -hmm. hitting their strides in their lives and their careers. And so we see that roughly 16% have purchased their first homes since receiving DACA. So we also know that home ownership has a lot of uh, derivative benefits across the economy. So with DACA, we are seeing individual benefits accrue to DACA recipients, to their families, but also as DACA recipients are uh, making larger footprints, Uh, especially as consumers, then that's how Mm -hmm. we can quantify, at least one way we can quantify a broader impact on the American economy. So that's a really good overview of sort of what DACA has meant for the actual recipients. But 
this policy, as as helpful it's been for that very relatively small group, this this wasn't supposed to be the fix. This was rolled out as a temporary solution for our lack of immigration policy. And yet a decade later, we still don't have comprehensive immigration reform. Why do you think we haven't managed to find a solution beyond DACA? That's a great question. So when we think about the broader immigration debate, um, we estimate that DACA recipients uh, contribute a combined $9.4 billion in federal, state, and local taxes annually. Uh, The dollars and cents, the costs and benefits of DACA uh, are very clear in terms of positive impacts to individuals, families, and to the broader American economy. But when we think about DACA, it is very much steeped in the broader debate over comprehensive immigration reform. And when we talk about that debate over comprehensive immigration reform, we are talking about a highly political, highly partisan, highly contentious debate over who we are as a country. So when we imagine DACA, we go back to 2012, And this is before the presidential election. Uh, The then Obama administration announced DACA as a way to essentially make a down payment on broader comprehensive immigration reform uh, post-November 2012 presidential election. There was some momentum uh, after that election. So in 2013, we have a comprehensive immigration reform bill passed the Senate. It ultimately died in the House, but... What we see in that debate uh, over the 2013 bill and the evolution of that debate to present is that even though DACA recipients are generally viewed as a sympathetic group of undocumented uh, immigrants, uh, they are still undocumented. And so for some uh, in this political debate, There are clear, hard lines against providing legal status to any group of undocumented immigrant, no matter how sympathetic they may be. And for DACA recipients, as Kai mentioned at the outset, these are undocumented young people who were brought to the country uh, through no fault of their own. They were brought at a young age by their parents. So even though this sympathetic uh, class of undocumented immigrants Uh, has broad support among the American public when it comes to polling that shows support for something like DREAM Act legislation, which would provide legal status uh, for undocumented young people. Uh, Decision makers, when it comes to 218 votes in the House or 60 votes in the Senate to overcome a filibuster, uh, there aren't enough votes uh, to even give this group a permanent legislative solution. The ideological sort of lines in the sand that are drawn over uh, immigration and regarding the legal status of undocumented immigrants uh, more specifically, uh, those ideological lines in the sand are almost impenetrable now when we look at voting behavior uh, among members of Congress. And so DACA recipients find themselves Uh, very much sort of trapped within that broader political, partisan, and ideological divide. So look, as the expert in the room on this topic in this conversation, uh, you've obviously thought a lot more about this than Kimberly and I have. What is the solution? What's the way out? Because I I don't want to sound dramatic here, but it is kind of dramatic. Lives literally hang in the balance. 
Lives do hang in the balance, and we have uh, actually embedded survey experiments in some of our questionnaires to gauge how much life would be different if DACA recipients no longer were protected from deportation and had work authorization. And we are talking about uh, literally, you know, being in the shadows, coming out of the shadows, and potentially having to go back in the shadows. So definitely lives hang in the balance and livelihoods also hang in the balance. I think one solution moving forward is to uncouple DACA and the DREAM Act from other aspects of comprehensive immigration reform. So when we think about that 2013 Senate bill, we were talking about legal status for undocumented immigrants. We were talking about interior immigration enforcement. We were talking about border uh, legislation. And we were essentially wrapping all of that together in one big piece of legislation. So when that happens, then all of a sudden, the uh, support there may have been for legal status for DACA recipients may no longer be there as soon as the conversation shifts to something like uh, increased Border Patrol personnel or funding. And so if there were a standalone bill on legal status for undocumented young people and for DACA recipients. There very much seems to be a pathway to 218 votes in the House and 60 votes in the Senate. Um, But the uh, ability to decouple and focus on discrete aspects of the immigration uh, reform debate, there are some leaders in Congress who do not want that to happen because they know that by including those more contentious aspects, then they can essentially maintain the status quo. So in other words, there are some among GOP leadership that won't move forward, for example, uh, Mitch McConnell, who won't move forward on standalone immigration bills. If there is something to be discussed on legal status for undocumented immigrants, then certain members, especially in the Senate chamber, also want to talk border security, also want to talk uh, interior immigration enforcement. And over the past 30 years now, since the last uh, comprehensive immigration reform bill, all of that seems to be strategy. It seems to be a matter of design to maintain the status quo, which is inaction on immigration-related legislation. So I, I was going to do a little kicker here by asking whether or not you're hopeful, but it sort of sounds like mm. you're not. I'm not hopeful. Yeah. I mean, when it comes to the work that I've done modeling how members of Congress are likely to vote on different aspects of uh, immigration-related legislation, uh, unless we are able to get a vote on a standalone bill, yeah. Uh, the second that you uh, start putting in other things, uh, support for uh, DREAM Act legislation, for example, wanes. And so we get further away from that 60-vote threshold. Of course, one option is to do away with the filibuster and make it 50 plus 1. Uh, but there, yeah, but, it's not yeah, a GOP but, story. Yeah, There's yeah. a Democratic Good story luck. to tell there. Yeah, that, yes, that, exactly. That's, that's so, probably harder than the standalone bill, right? I mean, that's... 
Democrats. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And that implicates Democrats. So right. it's not just GOP. Um, right. So it's there is a solution for Democrats that, but it's 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 one of these sort of nuclear options that yeah. Democrats aren't uh, willing to move on. Tom Wong is a professor of political science then at the University of California, San Diego. Also, he runs the U.S. Immigration Policy Center. Uh, at UCSD. Professor, thanks for your time and your expertise. I, I learned a bunch. Yeah. It's uh, depressing thank as hell, but I, but I did learn a bunch. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for having thanks me. A lot. Take care. Yeah, I, there, there ain't no answer. The way, right? You I know, mean, I'm kind of, ahead, I'm so. kind of bummed that this like ended on such a down note because all of last week, it was like, look, Congress is actually doing stuff. Congress is actually doing stuff. I'm like, when Kai gets back, I can be like, look, Congress is actually getting stuff done. And then as soon as you get back, it's like, but this one really huge thing that they have needed to do for a decade, still no logical path to a solution, which sucks, um, especially for, you know, the, the people in this situation, but also, you know, not to be cold hearted about it, but for the larger economy, because yep. people have been, um, let me say it a nicer way, griping and moaning for the last year about not having enough people to do, you know, various jobs in the labor force. Right. And immigration is a natural way to fix that problem. And yet, you know, there's still such resistance to it. And um, that's. It's not really confusing for me. Like, I, I right, get the right, arguments, right, right. but it's illogical to me. Yeah. And infuriating. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> anyway, tell us uh, what you think. If you are a DACA recipient, let us know. I'm curious how old you are, because this whole timeline thing yeah. has me very curious, because we keep talking about young people, but, you know, young is in the eye of the beholder, I guess. But I do feel like there's this image of sort of college students and teenagers when, you know, I was reading one of the articles that Marissa gave us to prep for this interview. And, you know, they were talking to a DACA recipient who was in, you know, her, you know, mid to late 30s, but she was a grandma, you know, at this yeah. point. And um, so anyway, if you're a DACA recipient, let us know what is the policy meant to you, uh, if you have thoughts about the policy and the program in general. Our number is 508-827-6278, also known as 508-UB-SMART. You can also send us a voice memo, makemesmart at marketplace.org, and we will be right back. Okay, and we are back. So now it is time for the news fix. Kai, why don't you go first? There is a piece in Bloomberg today. Actually, it's not just Bloomberg. It's, you know, the announcement was made publicly, so everybody had it. But the link I put in is in Bloomberg. Mm. American Airlines is betting huge on the future, and it is not a small gamble. They are betting on a company um, being able to make supersonic airplanes for commercial aviation, which if you know anything about commercial aviation, you know hasn't been happening since the Concorde went away. And that, of course, was an enormous, enormous money pit for the airlines that ran it. Anyway, so American Airlines is buying 20... Actually, can I stop yeah, you for a sure, second? Because a lot of people I don't think remember. Like, I have Seriously? vague memories oh of the Concorde am I? stuff. I'm not going to make an answer to that Shut question, but up. I do remember like hearing the sonic booms because I grew up relatively close to an Air Force base. And so, you know, you'd hear the sonic booms from like the Air Force jets. Right. But like the Concorde was supposed to be like the super fancy thing going from New York to London yep. and everything like that. But there is a whole 
generation of people who have not been around, or at least not in the traveling sphere, when supersonic flight for commercial aviation was a thing. So I do think it's worth kind of laying out the parameters. A very quick primer on uh, the Concorde. So there was a, a transatlantic competition in the 60s and 70s to build a supersonic airliner, right, that would cut in half or maybe a little bit less, actually, the time it took to get from London to New York or, by extension, in today's era, from Los Angeles to Tokyo, right? Um, mm-hmm. uh, the, the Brits won. The, it, was a, it was a French-English consortium, so it was a plane flown by British Airways and Air France, it came to be called the Concorde. The American version was called the SST, the Supersonic Transport. You've surely seen pictures of them, long, skinny, with a nose that drooped for landing so that the pilots could see the actual runway. And it was amazing and incredible and outrageously expensive and yet lost those companies billions of dollars because it was so expensive to operate and you could only fit. I mean, it was a teeny tiny little interior cabin, right? Yeah. It was two tiny seats on each aisle. Uh, in a really narrow cabin because it had to carry a lot of gas and giant engines and all that jazz. You didn't even get like first class seating, right? You got like consumer seats, like regular economy class seats. But you only had to spend three hours in them, which was the deal, right? To get from New York to, to Tokyo. And then depending on which way you're going, you could actually land before you took off if you follow time zone change and all that happy hoo-ha. Anyway, it flew because it was a symbol of national prestige. Until in the early 90s, there was a horrible accident in France where one of the planes cut a tire on takeoff. That cut tire got ingested into the engine. And then I'm sure you've seen, well, I keep saying I'm sure. If you look at the pictures, you will see this plane taking off with flame coming out of either uh, both or maybe just one side of the plane. Anyway, I can't remember. Blew up, hundreds of people killed, hundred and like 10-ish people killed. Um, and that was it. The airline scrapped it. So now... With a new generation of technology, right? I mean, let's remember that the Concorde, which flew into the 90s, was 60s and 70s technology. There's new technology now that can, in theory, make this work. And so American Airlines has become the first big legacy airline, in fact, the first airline at all, to order from uh, this company a new kind of supersonic jet, which would be a very, very, very big deal. The catch is that this plane has not yet been built. So American Airlines is betting on the future. It's going to be a decade. I just think it's really cool. I would be very happy to see the return of supersonic flight. I went on a family vacation to Australia in 2010. And going from Washington, D.C. to Los Angeles to Australia, like... As beautiful as the country was, I'm like, I'm never going back. Right. right, Like, I just, it was brutal. It was just absolutely brutal. And I would feel completely differently if that was, you know, a six hour flight instead of a 28 hour flight or whatever it was. And I think that, you know, will make a big difference. Now, that would have been even worse with, you know, the spread of COVID in, in the world, but, you know. Whatevs. Yeah. All right. Anyway, so there you go. That's my aviation news for today. Exciting. Well, from very, very big technology to very, very small technology, there's been um, the story that's been kind of bubbling in the background of of healthcare for, I want to say like a year, year and a half now, where the federal government 
has been pushing to allow over-the-counter hearing aids. Oh, yeah. And now the FDA has finally given approval for the sale of over-the-counter hearing aids, and people could start buying these things as soon as October October or the fall. And if you think about how much technology is in your AirPods or whatever Bluetooth headset of your desire, like it's... It's a very advanced technology, probably very similar to a lot of the technology in hearing aids, but hearing aids are a health device and subject to all these different regulations. So somebody might be paying four grand, often out of pocket, for a hearing aid when really they might just need a little amplification. And so if the easiest comparison I've heard about this is, you know, you can go and get a prescription for reading glasses and pay hundreds of dollars for your frame, whatever amount for your eye exam and whatever amount for your prescription. Or you can go to the corner pharmacy and pick up some readers for five or 10 bucks. And depending on what your vision needs are, that may do it for you. And so for people who maybe don't have super complicated hearing concerns, being able to buy this over the counter at what's un- deniably going to be a significantly lower cost is going to be pretty life-changing for some people, especially because hearing aids are not covered by Medicare. And this has been one of the things that people have been trying to get Medicare to cover, hearing aids and dental care over the years, and it hasn't been able to sort of push its way through. But by allowing hearing aids to be purchased over the counter and likely at much lower cost, it kind of eliminates um, some of that pressure on Medicare to include that coverage. So rather than getting Medicare to cover your $4,000 hearing aid, now you're potentially getting, you know, it's still paying out of pocket, but maybe you're paying a couple hundred bucks. Now, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of rules and a lot of labeling, and I'm sure there's going to be limited use cases, and there's still going to be people who need really expensive hearing aids, but it's a pretty big deal for people who um, suffer from some kind of hearing loss, which is eventually going to be all of us to some extent, especially those of us in radio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Oh, boy. Oi, oi, oi. All right. Onward we go, yes? Yes, to the mailbag. Go. Hi, Kai and Kimberly. This is Godfrey from San Francisco. Jesse from Charleston, South Carolina. And I have a follow-up question. It has me thinking and feeling a lot of things. All right, so we have been asking for your DACA stories. If you got them, here is one. Victor in Chicago. Hit it. I was born in Tijuana, Mexico, and raised in California since I was one. Prior to DACA, the most basic functions of living in the U.S. were a struggle. I lived in fear of being deported. I wasn't able to legally work, so I was limited in my employment options, which made it difficult to pay for school and support my family. Getting DACA brought stability and relief to my life. I was able to start building a career, become a homeowner, provide for my family, give back to my community by serving on nonprofit boards, and build a company that's created hundreds of jobs throughout the Midwest. Wow. The current instability surrounding DACA and lack of permanent solution is not only a source of stress for the nearly 600,000 DACA recipients, but also for the communities we're a part of. Yeah, that's exactly what Professor Wong was talking about. It is also, to the, to the, to the point of, of your question to him about this, it's a failure of regulation and law, right? I mean, it just is. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Oh, and um, Marissa just messaged me that Victor is 34, for the record. Oh, there you I was go, right? curious yeah, about that. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. All right. So here's a voice memo we got after our recent deep dive on inflation. Hi, Make Me Smart team. This is Christian in Kansas City, Missouri. I do want to share my one silver lining that inflation has helped with, and that is educating my daughter that money is not unlimited. Mm. Um, It has helped me at the store be able to stop her and say, you know, things are getting more expensive. Do you really need the brand name box of crackers or do you need really need that box of ice cream treats or is there something else we can get? And I encourage other parents out there, use inflation as a chance to maybe ask your child, do they understand how money works? Amen. And I'll, yes, and I'll use this as an opportunity to point to the episode on Million Bazillion about inflation, which is nice. our kids' podcast. When my uh, niece and nephew were in town, I was uh, having them listen to it. And, you know, they were mainly on their phones, but then I, I got a couple questions about it later. So I think yeah. it was like seeping into the subconscious. <laughs> All right. Before we go, we are going to leave you with this week's answer to the Make Me Smart question, which is, what is something you thought you knew, but you later found out you were wrong about? Hi, this is Susanna from Cathedral City, California. As I drive to work in my wonderful electric vehicle, I always thought that electric vehicles were built to be lighter, to get longer range. But after being told yesterday that I have to replace all four of my tires after not even getting 30,000 miles on my car, I was told this was the case because my car is heavier. And in some cases, you can maybe only get up to 10,000 miles on your tires. Thank you for everything you do. Bye. Wow. Battery. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's They're heavy because of those batteries weigh a ton. I don't know about the specific numbers on this one, but it stands to reason for sure. Yeah, and they wear differently also. So you still have, like, you know, different – you still have stuff in the front. But, like, at least when I had my hybrid vehicle – I know it's not an electric vehicle. But, like, you still had the gas engine in the front and all the weight there. Right, right, right. But then you had this giant heavy battery in the back also. So, you know, all the things. All the things. You can send us your answers uh, to all the things, but also the Make Me Smart question via voice memo to our email, marketplace.org. Leave us a regular old message at 508-827-6278. 508-UB-SMART is another way to do that. Make Me Smart is directed and produced by Marissa Cabrera. Our intern is Olivia Zhao. Ellen Rolfus writes our newsletter, and today's program was engineered by Jake Cherry with mixing by Mishin Quigan, and Ben Tolliday and Daniel Ramirez composed our theme music. Bridget Bodner is a senior producer of this podcast. Donna Tam is the director of On Demand. Francesca Levy is the executive director of digital, and Marketplace's vice president and general manager is Neil Scarborough. I'm sorry if I made you feel old with all that That's okay. Stuff. No, it's, it's me making myself feel old. Don't worry about it. I think the only thing some people know is fly to the Concords. <laughs> yeah, that could be.